When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Danny Elfman, and you're listening to the LSQ Podcast. Hey, it's Jenny LSQ. It was such a pleasure to connect with legendary film composer Danny Elfman for the conversation you're about to hear in episode 67 of the LSQ podcast. Thanks so much for pressing play. Uh, Danny and I talk about, as a child, how he first became interested in film scores, his years in Oingo Boingo, how he hooked up with director Tim Burton, with whom he's worked on more than 16 different films in the past 30 years, his new album, Big Mess, which is his first solo LP in 37 years, just released recently, and also about The Nightmare Before Christmas. He's reprising his role as Jack Skellington for a live performance of Nightmare at the Hollywood Bowl later this month. Let's get into it. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Danny. It's so nice to meet you. I'm, I'm uh, honored to have you as a guest on the LSQ podcast. And am I on camera? You're not, no. Oh. I mean, you can turn your camera on if you'd like. Oh, there we are. Hi. I didn't realize. Sorry, that's rude. Well, no, I mean, you know, we it's, we're all adapting to what do we do in this situation, you know, where okay. we're connecting this way. So I respect all choices of camera, no camera kind of thing. I just need to hear you, but it's good to see uh, you as Other well. than I look like a wreck, I... <laughs> I'm sitting in a closet right now. I'm literally sitting in my closet where I record all my shit. Well, you know, it's funny because um, I got a new house that I'm just moving into in L.A. And I was trying to figure out where to put a studio. And um, my I was looking at this hillside going, oh, I could put it there, but it'll be so expensive. Caissons and supports of retaining walls. And my wife's uh, assistant, Gloria, she comes up to me and she goes, what about your closet? And I laugh and I go up there and I look and you go, and I said, you know, I actually could. And now that's going to be my new studio. Oh, wow. I'm just modifying a wall, you know, where there's like a closet within the closet kind of doors. And uh, I'm kind of breaking it all out. And it's absolutely minimal. But for a home studio, it'll absolutely provide the minimum requirements for me to do my thing in the middle of the night when I, uh, you know, need to come up with an idea and I could run in there and take care of it. Amazing. Yeah. No, so, now so, I yeah. feel a little bit more like impressed with my own closet studio now that I know that Danny Elfman is going to have a closet studio well, yeah, as well, you know? You know? It, it's almost like... <laughs> it's um, where the magic happens. Right. You know, my I, uh, I think that we're kind of reaching the point technologically for a composer where you need less and less. And at a certain point, it's like, I just need a table. Uh, a computer and two monitors and a keyboard. And there actually was plenty of room in this kind of weird closet kind of makeup room, perhaps, uh, off my bathroom. I mean, I literally have to walk through my bathroom to get to my studio when it's done. It's going to be pretty funny. That's awesome. I mean, I can't help but wonder, thinking about previously when you're looking at the side of a hill and, you know, thinking you might build one from truly from scratch, like, Approximately how many studio spaces over how, would you estimate you've constructed for yourself over the years? Um, my God, at least half a dozen. Um, my first studio, I lived in Topanga Canyon in this kind of weird place, and I had to dig underneath the house and prop the house up and then pour a wall and then make my studio for myself because I lived on this weird hillside. And, um, I, uh, you know, at that point we needed like reel to reel 24 track tape recorders and it was so cumbersome and I was down like a hundred steps and trying to get a 24 track down. Oh my God. And a mixing board. It was incredibly difficult. So what and year, what year ish would that have been? 19 late eighties. Right. 
Right. So before that, you were really just ad libbing with whatever space you had in a in a existing home or rehearsal space or. Well, re- yeah, re- I mean, there wasn't before that. Mm. Um, really, uh, that was my first home studio. Yeah, because late by late eighties, you were you were starting to also just have money coming in, to, so that such that you could build a studio. You were already starting to do film projects, and Oingo yeah. Boingo was huge, and. So that that was the that was the first like I'm going to build my own studio from scratch basically. Well, it was really when I got the film composing because uh, I needed a, a space to work in and do these demos and and record my pieces for, and play play them back for directors and it just changed my needs for you know for me in a band I didn't need really a home studio you know when you're in a band you you write songs. Um, you come up with the chords, you know, you play the parts just to remember them and do it to your portable tape recorder. And uh, lyrics are scribbled out on a sheet of paper, and you kind of bring that in and work it out with the band. There's not need for much of a studio, I found, when I was uh, in Oingo Boingo. Uh, but then when I started getting the composing work, it's like, okay, I have to make demos of every piece of music and have directors over and play them back for them. So that became like a a new dilemma and so hence my first home studio yep there must be in a kind of an evolving understanding over the years and various studios since then of what it is that achieves the right combination of the utility that you need in any given situation to have the gear that you need but also considering the creative world you have to go into to write these kinds of things i would imagine you've over the years noticed you need certain aesthetic components of the space or is there is there any kind of thread of where you're like my studio space needs to have this kind of creatively supportive element of it for me specifically no no i i, I don't think so i mean uh i love my studio here in hollywood where i work now uh it's not as you can see it's you know it's it's nice it's not huge right uh but you know, it does everything I need to do, and I could put half a dozen people in here and play back music. Uh, but when I wrote Big Mess, I have a house up north out of town, and uh, it has the most minimal little space. And it was originally owned by a German opera singer, and it was her teaching room, the little room that she gave uh, opera lessons in, and I made that my music room. But it's so bare bones. You know, it really, I have a computer, and on the computer I can bring a file from Los Angeles and work a score, a piece of score, if I want to do that. But as no external synthesizers, um, really just a computer. And along with it, in case I need it, um, I have one electric guitar and one handheld mic. And uh, because sometimes on a score, I actually do use my voice or I use electric guitars. And so it's kind of set up for that. And when I went up there, to quarantine and you know I'd never stayed there for more than a week and after a couple of months it's like I ended up staying there a year um, but I realized that that's all I needed and I, I recorded all of uh, the basic tracks for Big Mess uh, in this little room no working headphones for the first couple of months because I couldn't get them working and at a certain point I didn't care and when I finally did get them working I didn't use them anyhow because I was just enjoying handheld mic in front of the speakers and um it made me really understand how little that i really needed to get in there and you know record these songs yeah you can't help but wonder though if there's some vibes of like children singing german opera though just like hanging out in the room like some some spirits that that also like had to have been imbu- you know imbuing something into the mix um no, that's very true i mean i i, I do believe that uh, the singer she lived there for 50 years before me and that her ghost uh, does lurk about. And I think she's pleased with who, who ended up in her house. I would I would hope so. Otherwise, she should just get the fuck out. <laughs> I know. I did a couple times when I bought the place. I found like weird things like photograph out that I didn't know where it came from of her and the house. Like one of the, the house from the 1940s with a, a dog and her in the front of the house. And it's like, where did this come from? <laughs> like, kind of some strange stuff wow. like that happened. But 
the point is, uh, I figured if a ghost is doing this, I consider this kind of to be like a, a, a good thing. You know, here's a picture of me and my dog. When we first bought the house, that's not a hostile thing, you know. <laughs> There's a no, lot worse sweet. thing that ghosts can do. I, I thought it was very sweet. So, uh, and one of the rooms of the house I've dedicated to her. I've just, uh, it was a room that still had furniture in it when I bought the place and had a vibe. And I kept all the original furniture in it. And I have pictures of her all over the room. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. We call it the ghost room. You know, I don't know whether she's ever in there. But if she ever does come through the house... I want her to see that her her name and her memory is revered. Oh, that's wonderful. And celebrated. Yeah, yeah. You know, another interesting thing, though, we talk, we're, we're here today in part talking about Big Mess, which is your first new album, your first album in 37 years. And I know from reading up about it that you weren't, you didn't go into that house thinking, I'm going to make my first new album in three plus decades. It, it was something that arose in the moment. But oh, that, yeah, it, yeah, that it was definitely. deeply impactful, to, that letting that come out of you was deeply impactful. Yes? Yeah, it, it was almost like therapy because, uh, you know, heading into 2020, first off, 2020 was such a, a strange year for me. It was going to be because I took no film work for the whole year, which is rare. Well, rare, meaning I've never done that. And I had so many concerts booked, I decided I'm really just going to commit to these concerts. Normally, I have a couple of concerts here and there that I work my projects around. But here, I had like 25, 30 concerts. And uh, so Coachella, you know, tremendous amount of work building a show up from scratch for Coachella. Uh, and then we were going to do more shows possibly around Coachella. Also, I had Burton Elfman shows, this big orchestral thing that we take around the world. I had Nightmare Before Christmas shows. And I also had... Uh, the London premiere of my violin concerto, uh, which was playing also in some in a number of different cities, plus two premieres, world premieres, um, a piece for the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain and a and a cello concerto. Um, it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of yeah, stuff. Yeah, so it was a lot of stuff, <laughs> and it all collapsed, right? Yeah. So, I hold up at this house uh, with my wife and child and dog, but I was really depressed, you know. Uh, three months of solid work going into preparing this. I don't know if anybody at Coachella has ever accepted a concert with nothing ready. No band, no nothing. I mean, literally from the ground up and creating lots of visuals. And, uh, you know, it it was really exciting. And uh, I just started rehearsing with this band that I was really loving. And we were just starting to sound good. So, you know, I finally worked up the nerve to do this and it all it all collapses. And then on top of that, you know, add to that America 2020. I already I almost felt that George Orwell could have written a sequel to 1984 and called it 2020. And it was like an America that I never could have imagined in my lifetime that we're actually handing over democracy to some, you know, it, it'll be called a democracy, but like a Putin-style uh, democracy where there's no question about authoritarian uh, regime uh, completely in charge, and there's no opposition, really. And uh, it's like this non-reality 2 plus 2 equals 5, and I just kept thinking Orwell is alive right now because... That's what it means to buy into these lies is you really have to believe two plus two equals five because Big Brother says so. Our ruler says so. And we don't need facts. We don't need science. We don't need anything but the fact that our ruler says so. And I said, that can't be happening here. And yet it was. And then, of course, throw on top of that a year of isolation and pandemic. So it was kind of a perfect storm for me to go crazy. And in that, I just thought, well, you know, I'll sit down and put lyrics to a few songs and and ideas. I, I had this idea I was pitching for uh, a festival called Dark Mofo in Tasmania in 2019, and I called it to them uh, Chamber Punk. And so I, I had this piece of music with no lyrics, and it became the song Sorry, the first song on Big Mess, but it was done as a long, like really 10, 12-minute instrumental kind of uh, rock band orchestral fusion piece of music 
And I said, well, I'll start by putting, you know, I'll start there. And what I realized when I started going was that uh, I had so much venom in me that uh, it wasn't healthy. And then when I really started writing, it really kind of the Pandora's box flew open. So whereas I, my goal was to write half a dozen songs um, before I knew it, you know, I had 18 <laughs> and uh, I had to call my manager and go, look, we need to put an arbitrary deadline here because I won't stop. You know, I've got that OCD thing and I'll be continually trying to get it better, a better song, better, get it right, get it right, get it right. And, and I'll never stop because there's no deadline. And uh, so we did. And, you know, finally in later summer, you know, we said, that's it, no more. Hence the big mess. Yeah, I mean, so it must, did it feel in a sort of very cause and effect way that each time you worked on one of these these pieces that became these songs that you that you felt better, you know, that you felt lighter or, or like, this is what, this is, yes, this is whether or not this is a Danny Elfman album 30 plus years after, you know, later, it doesn't matter. I need to, to purge this stuff. Yeah. I, I needed to get it off my chest. So, so, and, uh, and it was odd that, you know, when I used to be in Oingo Boingo, I was constantly battling these impulses to go in opposite directions. And it really made it difficult and finally impossible for me to be in a band. I, I wanted to be in a different band every two years. And I've always felt really envious of artists out there that seem to have a really clear identity of what they were. You know, when, when, we were, when I was in Oingo Boingo, we used to play at this club downtown called Madame Wong's Chinatown. And right down the street in Chinatown was a place called the Hong Kong Cafe. And there was a band called X that would play there. And I would run to see X in between each of my sets because we do two sets and I would see X in the, in the middle. And I remember thinking, man, they're real. And I have no identity. And I was so envious of that that I, I always felt like I was some kind of chameleon, but I never knew who or what I was. And so when I was in a band, I wanted to, well, first, you know, I was in weird musical cabaret theater for eight years. And then suddenly I hear ska music out of England and say, I want to be in a band. And I start a band. But every two years, I wanted to be in a different band. But you can't do that when you're in a band. And, uh, and then suddenly I become a film composer out of the blue. And I realized these competing impulses worked to my favor rather than torturing me. Um, because you can go from one extreme to the other. Uh, you can go from really intense kind of grinding music to something very small and minimal and, and touching to something very lush and romantic to something completely absurd and ridiculous. And, and that appealed to me. Both sides of me settled down because they each got their turn. And then when I started writing Big Mess, I was going, oh man, these guys... They don't like each other, and they're competing for space right now. And the songs started coming out in pairs. It was really weird. It's like each song would be dark, and then really crazy fast and energized, and then heavy, and then kind of crazy fast. And it's like, okay, that's already, by the time I had six songs, I was like, this is going to be two different albums. These don't have anything to do with each other. They're like kind of the two nasty, not nasty, but uh, competing kind of mindsets that each one doesn't like the other and elbows the other one out of the way and goes, no, kind of fast, crazy, kind of get it out there, bam, 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 bam. And the other one is like, no, heavy, <laughs> you know, like you feel most of the time, heavy, filled with like, you know, thoughts of your own demise and the end of everything and the end of your life and the end of the country and the end of the universe as you know it you know the, they were they were both fighting for microphone time and by the end yeah. I realized this is definitely a big mess and that big mess is definitely me you know zooming out on on all of the music you've made and you talk about wanting to be a different band every couple of years and that you know that as 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 wide as the spectrum is in your in your film catalog it's still the through line as it sounds like you i mean there is a sound that you make that is what people seek out when they seek out you as the composer that is what you 
and 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 I can't help but wonder if in a way it's always had this dichotomy that you're talking about with Big Mess, which leads to the question, yeah, when you were a kid and you first embraced songwriting as a thing that you might do and do again, how was it different than than writing Big Mess? How did it how did it feel back then? I think the biggest difference is I was more protective of myself. When I wrote songs in Oingo Boingo, I mostly wrote third person, um, meaning take the the point of view of a character, either likable or despicable, didn't matter, mm-hmm. and uh, tell a story from that perspective. And that's kind of a fun way to write, but it's also, in hindsight, I see very protective. And only on occasions that I write something that was really from me. And when Big Mess started, it was the other way around. I wrote a couple of songs uh, third person, meaning like Love in the Time of COVID is a song written by a horny 20-year-old living in a small apartment by himself climbing the walls going crazy. Obviously, that's not me. But most of them were. And so it was really, rather than being more like 90% sarcastic and third person, you know, or 80% in Oingo Boingo, somewhere in there, it it kind of flipped around. And I was writing in a way that I honestly didn't know if I was going to put the songs out because I go, this is too dark and it's too personal. And, you know, maybe these are just for me and a dozen friends to listen to and family. And it wasn't until after it was all done that I said, no, you know, what the fuck? Just put them out there and, you know, it'll be what it'll be. And people will find it or they won't find it. And they'll go, oh, my God, this guy's troll and boring or that's okay, you know. (laughs) You know, it's like people will think what they're going to think or they more likely they won't discover it and won't think anything one way or the other. That's fine, too. I noticed that uh, you also last year composed a 10-minute piece of music for President Biden for his, uh, for during the convention, yes, his acceptance of yeah, the Yeah, that was in the middle. That was in the middle, in the of, middle big, of it. Yeah, middle of big mess. It's like I got a call, uh, and it was kind of like David Guggenheim uh, called, the filmmaker, and he said, are you busy? And I go, extremely. I go, uh, well, uh, do you have any music that you might have that you could lend us for the Biden, you know, in our, not the inauguration, I'm sorry, it was for the yeah, convention, the, no, the, right, the acceptance right. uh, of the nomination. And I said, oh, oh, I get it. Yeah. I said, when do you need it? He goes, I need it next week. I said, I'll start in the morning. And it was kind of like call to duty. <laughs> it's like you're in the National Guard and you get that call saying, you know, we, you're, you're on tomorrow, show up at six o'clock. And it's like, yes, sir. And it, it felt like that. It's like, all right, I, I, you know, this is different. This is you drop everything and you yeah. just do it. And so I did. I dropped everything and I wrote the piece and he was wonderful to work with. And uh, I was happy and proud to just make any little contribution that I could to the campaign, you know, as yeah, minimal as totally. it was. Plus you were, you were, you had already started to kind of open the vein of letting out some of what you were feeling about the presidency that, as we now know, was luckily ending and to have. Well, but I didn't think it was ending. Right. Uh, in fact, I was sure that it wasn't. So it, it was really desperate times for me. You know, I, I'm an eternal pessimist. Uh, you know, I'm one of those people that looks at the half-filled glass, and I see a glass that's three-quarters empty, not a glass that's half-full. And so, to me, uh, there was just no doubt that Trump was going to bulldoze himself into a second presidency. And it's ironic that it took a world pandemic to bring him down. Let's go back to your earliest memories of music in- affecting you. What what do you remember being the first music that really struck you in a meaningful way, like as, as a little kid? Really, uh, it was film music. And I was about 11 or 12 when I saw a movie called The Day the Earth Stood Still. And it was a score by Bernard Herrmann. And it's the first time I recognized there's a name by this music that I'm really enjoying. And the music really moved me. And um, and then, growing up in the 60s, you know, there's all these science fiction fantasy films uh, with the... I loved the stop-motion animation of Ray Harryhausen. 
And so if a film had the name Harryhausen and Herman, which is the the animator, Ray Harryhausen, and the composer, Bernard Herman, I knew it was going to be my favorite film of the year. And it w- always was. So those would be films like The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Jason and the Argonauts. I mean, I loved these movies with the skeletons with swords fighting each other to Bernard Herrmann's music. It was just brilliant. How long did it take you to put together in your mind that that was, that it was the music that goes with the visuals that you like, that that was part of what you really get off on? Well, I mean, I think it was that movie that I realized that I didn't, you know, I'd always taken it for granted, like most kids or most people would, that there's just music there. It's just playing. Right. And you don't think about it. And suddenly it was a realization that, no, this music was created to go with this film by an individual artist. Right. And I started noticing film scores as I was a teenager. And and really, I mean, me becoming a film composer was like a fan of a game getting pulled into the game. Because by the time I was a young adult, it never occurred to me that I would be a film composer. And I never tried towards that goal. It didn't seem possible. I didn't have the the tools to do that. I didn't I never went to school. I I music school. I I just didn't seem possible. And but I was You're still, a pessimist. You're a pessimist. We know this. I'm a pessimist and I, but I was a big <laughs> fan. And so it was almost like, you know, when uh I live in Los Angeles and I, I grew up here. So watching Laker games, the basketball team, uh you'd always see a shot of Jack Nicholson courtside. You know, it's like, there's the game. It's like, okay, there's, you know, Kobe or whomever, you know, doing this amazing stuff. And there's Jack Nicholson, like off on the side, kind of like with his sunglasses on. So it's kind of like there's a Laker game going. Somebody gets injured and they toss the ball to Jack and go, get on the court. You're on. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of like what it was like when I was thrown the ball in uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It's like, yeah. wait a minute, I'm a fan. I'm not a composer. I'm a fan. Yeah. And it's like, and Tim was like, no, you can do this. And and so I did. Because I may be a pessimist, but I'm never one to turn down a challenge. And yeah. it seemed impossible. And that made it really seem juicy and tantalizing. Right. Was that literally the first job? Because I mean, Weird Science was written for Weird Science, correct but that was sort of just a one-off song situation that was a one-off song which is you know i'd had a number of songs and and when i met tim burton for peewee's big adventure i actually thought that he was looking for a song it didn't occur to me that he was looking for a score i just thought oh okay you know you want a song let's talk about what kind of song but the very first time i did music for film was from my brother a film called uh forbidden zone but it wasn't like it wasn't like an orchestral score you know it was uh I'm trying to think of how to explain it. This was the end of the theater group, The Mystic Knights. And so I wrote a score for The Mystic Knights, but I didn't score it in a, in a way that, you know, like you would for uh, an orchestral score. I, you know, it wasn't like I was writing out every beat to the screen. I was really coming up with musical ideas that seemed to fit and creating some songs and then themes from those songs would play. It was the first time putting music to film, but it wasn't... Uh, a score in what I was going to learn to be what scoring was, meaning writing down every note exactly in sync with the scenes in the movie. But it was the first experience, and it really did help get me Pee-wee's Big Adventure because Tim Burton was a fan of Oingo Boingo, the band. But uh, Paul Rubens, uh, a.k.a. Pee-wee Herman, he was a big fan of Forbidden Zone. So somehow when they were talking about music, my name came up from two different directions because Paul had made a note that, oh, whoever did this Forbidden Zone, if I do a movie, I want this guy to do my music. So he he already had like uh, my name in in the hat there. And Tim used to come see the band. I was writing music. Tim was digging it. And that's all I cared about. And I honestly expected Warner Brothers would hear the score and throw it out and hire a real composer to do a proper score. And so for me, it was just an experience. It's like, have fun, write the score, don't get upset when they throw it out, and move on, get back to what you do. But it'll be like, you know, a cool experience. But it didn't work out that way. (laughs) 
Yeah. What? How far in, or how many how many films in were you when you started to feel like, you know, not just confidence that you you know in executing it that any project that might come up, but also just the understanding that this is your thing. You know how. how... You know, I have to say that that first time I was in front of the orchestra, the first cue with Pee Wee's Big Adventure, it was kind of like heroin. It was like it got into my veins and it was like, oh, I could really like this. I'd never been in front of an orchestra before. And I just couldn't believe how full and big the sound was. And uh, it definitely gave me the bug. But it took 10 more films for me to really know that this is something I really want to do. So it really wasn't until Batman. Uh, Since then, obviously, you take a lot of different kinds of film projects. But, you know, given your choice, if you were always picking the the kinds of films that that you would be working on, what, you know, what is your favorite type of film to to make music for? Well, there you get the competing sides again. Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I like... I like it when a score is very anything. So if it's very intense, I'm happy. If it's very absurd, I'm happy. If it's very romantic, I'm happy. And if it's really small and intimate, I'm happy. So uh, I don't have a kind of score that I love. It just has to be very. The, the time where I'm unhappy is where it's somewhere in the middle. And I get miserable because... There's just nothing for me to grab onto, and I feel like I'm just putting, you know, some. There's moments as a composer where you're just putting music to a scene that may not really need music, but you know, the filmmakers feel that they, they need to have music going. But there's nothing to grab hold of and go, "This is what should be playing." And uh, for example, I learned early on that doing a romantic comedy, I was absolutely miserable. I just wanted to kill myself. It's like I just writing for contemporary characters in romantic comedy. I never knew what to do. Nothing I wrote came out easily or naturally. It was the hardest, you know, thing, the hardest genre for me in the world. You know, unless the characters got kind of kinky or twisted, like a silver lining playbook is a romantic comedy, but I love doing it. But the characters were weird enough and the story was that it's like, oh, this is no problem because I get this. They're like fucked up humans. It's like it completely works for me. <laughs> it's not just a cute couple uh, meeting each other over and over and you're just waiting for them to fall in love. Which is uh, boring as hell. Which is boring as hell to me. Yeah. And uh, they were like damaged people. And, yeah. you know, once damaged people come into the picture, it's like, OK, I'm fine now. Well, yeah, I guess Goodwill Hunting is kind of that way, ultimately. Too. Goodwill it's Hunting like, is, too. It's, it, it, it was is, very it's emotional. not a rom-com, but it but it is in a way. It is in a way, but it's definitely got a heart of like of a drama of, of what's going to happen of this kind of weird character that's we just can't tell if he's got a future in this planet or not and. I really liked it, you know. It's like, um, it, as you said, it's it's romantic, but it's not a romantic comedy. It's really a story of, like, somebody surviving against odds in a kind of remarkable way, and that became very interesting for me. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the case of that one in particular, I'm intrigued just as someone who was not just a massive fan of but also friends with Elliot Smith. I'm curious with The Goodwill Hunting, like, what how much uh, once you became aware that there was going to be this through line of a few of his songs throughout yeah. the movie like did that pivot at all what you were writing oh yeah it did you know usually when i start a film the songs are added at the end and most commonly as i'm writing there's just don't write a so- don't write score here here and here song 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 but there might be a dozen different songs over the course of every time I get a cut, they're trying a different song. <laughs> and I, I often don't know what it'll be until the movie's completely finished. Uh, and this was rare. I went onto the set while they were shooting. And uh, when I met Gus in Boston out there, he gave me a CD and he said, I- I'd like you to listen to Elliot Smith. I really think it's going to be songs are just going to be by him. And I listened to the Elliot Smith and I was like, Oh yeah, I I love this. 
And then I had the pleasure of sitting in uh, Gus's basement with Elliot and Gus with acoustic guitars. And I was playing through ideas and Elliot was playing stuff. It was so much fun to be interacting. And it absolutely did inform the tone. Uh, I knew that I was going to write with acoustic guitar because Elliot was using acoustic guitar. And I wanted to make the score go in and out of his songs as kind of fluidly as possible so that, you know, there's a, there are a few moments where they almost touch. And so I wanted to create the tone of the score. So when the score went into the song or back into score, it would feel really effortless and fluid. And so Elliot definitely informed me tonally the direction that I really wanted to stay in for that score. And, and working with him was such a pleasure. Yeah, he was a wonderful guy and, and much more much more light and funny in person than than people assume. So I, I'm guessing you probably had some good laughs uh, well, around I, each other as well. It was during the Academy Award rehearsals, and Elliot calls me once. He goes, Danny, I'm at this rehearsal, and we're doing my song, and they did their own arrangement for the strings, and I'm not happy. Can you do something? And I go, well, Elliot, when do you need this by? He goes, tomorrow. <laughs> and it was just like with Biden. You were called to duty. I did it that night. We got the, you know, got the music out the next morning really fast. And, and he was much happier. You mentioned that, you know, some of the spirit of making Big Mess was informed by having not taken any film scores for the year and thinking you were leading up to Coachella and then... You, you weren't. But yeah. I, the, the question is twofold. One is, are you since then, are you now now stuff's getting back into action? Do you have any upcoming film projects? Obviously, you can't tell us what they are. But are you back into that work mode? A, B, yeah. no, I'm, Coachella I, is Coachella. Yeah. Do you think Coachella? So what's what's coming up? It's the busiest time ever for me because, uh, you know, I thought Big Mess would take a six months of my life. And here it's like a year and a month later, and it's still, you know, I'm, you know, finished the album. Oh, okay. That, that's the easy part. Now it's like, um, obviously, I'm doing press, which I really have been enjoying, by the way. So there's a lot of work. But also, I am on a film. Uh, it's called 65. That's all I can tell you. Cool. Uh, and it's a mostly synthesizer film. So I've been busily scraping together all my synthetic sounds because that's always a bit of a chore switching from orchestral to synthesizer. But it's challenging and I love it. Yeah. I'm also trying to finish the last movement of a cello concerto uh, that will debut next spring for a cellist, a French cellist named Gautier Capisson. And so <laughs> it, it's a little crazy around here. And, and also, I've been doing remixes for the deluxe set, you know, so that's not over yet. It's like, right. oh, we got the deluxe box set. So every day this last week, uh, I'm working on this fantastic book of artwork of Sarah Sitkin, uh, who mm. did all the imagery for the project, making like a 56-page book, trying to make a mold of my hand, because uh, <laughs> I had this idea of like a hand in the box set that comes out and you can set on and it could be like... <laughs> You could light it up because I love hands. I'm obsessed with hands. And I got a weird one. So I uh, I thought that would be fun. And yeah. um, also a number of remixes. Wow. Incredible. All good stuff, though. All good stuff. And then I go right into uh, Doctor Strange 2 from Marvel. And, yeah. um, and, and getting then, ready for the shows in the fall, right? I in mean, the you've fall. Got, the... got Nightmare Before Christmas coming back. Thank God, because... That's like the first concert in, it'll be over a year and a half, you know, of no concerts. And finally, the first signs of like, no, we're doing a concert. And, yeah, uh, and I, I would imagine too, you know, I, I recently thought of this analogy of like video games, how in video games, your character has power bars for the different things that you can get power from. And we all have our different power bars. You yeah. know, like I like when I make a good suggestion and somebody takes it. That's one of my power bars. Okay. You know? <laughs> um, but uh, I would imagine that playing Skellington is one of your power bars where it's just like its own thing where you're like, I'm doing the Skellington thing. It's going to feel awesome. It, it really it really is fun. It really feels good because first off, it's not a part of my repertory. It's not like I'm bringing back something that I, I did a lot because I never sang uh, any of those songs live. Uh, when I wrote them, it, you know, they were done in the studio and I never thought about it after that. So until whatever, seven years ago, seven, eight years ago, when I did this thing for Albert Hall, 
it never occurred to me that I would ever sing them live. So, and the concerts are far enough apart that I haven't gotten that sense that I used to get being in a band where I'd go on tour where it's like, that's it. I never want to perform this song again. You know, it's like, right. give me three to six months of touring and I never want to play something again. I, I don't know how bands tour for a year. I don't know how they tour year after year. Uh, it is an art and a skill. I think to me, it's the same skill one has that goes into theater. You're going on every night. You're doing seven shows a week. Um, or six, seven, eight shows a week, every night. How do you do that? Uh, I think, I would... but I think it's just, it's the wanting to be that person, I guess, too. That's the thing with, even with you becoming Jack Skellington now that the past several years you've been able to do that here and there. It's just like that you get to inhabit that character. I get to inhabit it, but I keep it sparse enough that it doesn't hit me with the sense of like, I never want to do this again. I'm not there yet. And because, especially with Jack Skellington, it's such a surprise to be able to bring back this character that I thought was gone. In other words, of all the movies I've worked on, the one I was most invested in was Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, normally I'm on a film for about 12 weeks. Here I was on for two years. And uh, I was there from the very inception with Tim. Because uh, the first thing, we didn't have a script. We started writing the songs. And we didn't really know how to start. So it's like, well, let's start with the songs. And it made sense to us. There was no handbook on how to start an animated musical. And um, so uh, I was very invested in the character, and I really related to the character. Because what Jack Skellington, the king of Halloween land, wanting to escape, but everybody loved what he did, was very much like being a songwriter, singer-songwriter in a band. Um, you know, you're the king of your own little universe, but I wanted out for years and I didn't know how to get out. And so when Tim came to me with the story of Jack Skellington, I was like, oh, I, I so know this guy. And um, as I was writing the songs, I was half writing the song. Obviously, I was writing the story of Jack Skellington, but I was writing also myself uh, into it. It was like, I understand this guy because I'm going through the same thing and uh, and then as the movie was coming out there was such confusion over what it was and nobody knew Disney didn't know how to market it which makes I mean you know in their defense how could they you know this was not Beauty and the Beast this was not Little Mermaid and there was no model there was nothing for them to grab hold of and go what is this and then on top of that there was a general perception that the film, kids hated it. Um, and so it was too scary for kids. And so I did a press junket in uh, at Disney World uh, for Nightmare Before Christmas for two days. And every single journalist said the same thing. They said, so this movie's too scary for kids. Who's it for? <laughs> and over and over <laughs> and over, I was going, no. Um, and I would hear things like, I hear Santa Claus is tortured. <laughs> and I go, no, 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 no. He's not tortured. He's inconvenienced, and he's not even terribly upset with it by the end. It's not. But there was, the, and Disney pulled all their marketing, and uh, it just came out with a, it just kind of came and went fairly fast. And I was heartbroken, you know. I just felt like it was really misunderstood. And so, uh to find an audience and regain a second life is so rare for a movie that I'll always feel that Nightmare is like this kind of special, it was like a blessing in a way, because how many films get a second life? You know, The Wizard of Oz was one. It kind of didn't do that well, but then obviously became popular later. There are films that develop these big cult followings after they're out, like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like, to a certain extent, maybe Donnie Darko. You know, there's those mm -hmm, films that mm -hmm. kind of develop a following years after they're out. But there's so few. And the fact that I was in Tokyo with Tim uh, for the opening of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and we would run around the toy stores together, and there was Jack and Sally dolls everywhere. And Tim was going, I've never even seen this stuff. And there was even a Nightmare Before Christmas-inspired club in downtown Tokyo, and Damn. it's like, you know, this thing has not gone away. 
And then after that, Disney started picking up on the fact that, you know, this is kind of like a cultural thing. It's It keeps kind of hanging in there. And they started putting energy into it. To their credit, they a decade after it was out, I think they understood what it was now. And the most gratifying thing for me, and this is one of the reasons I love doing these concerts, is that this was the movie that kids hated. This was the movie that was too scary for kids. And I look out there at these audiences, and it's families, and it's kids. And, you know, people are always sending me videos of their kids singing songs from Nightmare. And that generation after generation, you know, more kids get into it. And every time I see that, I feel a sense of vindication that um, I always knew that it was twisted in just enough to make a kid enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, and if you liked stuff that was kind of weird and surreal and twisted cartoons as a kid, then why wouldn't kids of whatever generation also be into We well, need to give kids more credit for their smarts, that they're Absolutely. not that easily freaked out. But yeah. You know, I mean, but I'm just I'm I'm just so glad that it provided you an, an inadvertent opportunity to have now these years later, like this show that you go do. You weren't even trying to be Jack Skellington, and now it's like uh, you know brings such joy to people that that concert experience. Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, it is it is really a pleasure. I'm still enjoying it at least one more time. You know, I, I don't know how much longer I'm going to do it because I don't want to run it into the ground. Yeah. Um, and I don't want it to become a thing where everybody knows where I'm going to be every Halloween, you know, because <laughs> it was like that for years with Oingo Boingo and it kind of drove me crazy. It's like Oingo Boingo did a Halloween show every year. And then there's a certain point with Nightmare where it's like, oh my God, am I just back to that same thing of like every Halloween <laughs> we know where Danny's going to be? I don't like being that predictable, but at the same time, it, you know, there's such, people are getting such pleasure from it and I'm still enjoying walking out there and you know, reviving Jack Skellington songs and singing with that voice. And it really, I owe it to Jack in terms of even having a voice at all because I'd really stopped singing. And when we started, it's the 25th anniversary of uh, Tim Burton and mine, you know, our collaboration, and they wanted to do this uh, concert at Albert Hall in London of uh, Tim Burton's music that became known as the Elfman Burton Concert Series. And I had to write 15 suites of 15 scores and it was a lot of work and at a certain point my agent had asked me so when you know when you're doing nightmare would you be willing to sing a couple songs and i said oh yeah yeah sure but i you know of course i said it and it was forgotten five minutes later so six months later i'm writing these suites and you know it's it's really hard i'm reinventing every suite for the concert for the live stage and i get to nightmare and i call him up and i go did i say i was going to sing and he goes yeah and i go well i'm not he goes, well, it's too late. <laughs> They're already advertising it. And I go, God damn it. <laughs> I don't know if I can do this. And so I'm trying to relearn the songs. And, and I haven't sung at that point in 18 years since my last concert. And I'm sitting there backstage with a show that I have no idea if any part of the show is going to work. There was no test run. There was no preview. This was the first ever show of Elfman Burton Suites with an orchestra live and me singing for the first time in 18 years. And it was like, what a disaster. And I had these images in my mind of being, you know, ridden out of London on a rail with tarred and feathered. You know, that, that's my image of how this is going to go. I've never also performed in England. And uh, I froze up and I, I'm backstage. And it's like, I'm going, I, I can't do this. You know, I, I just can't do it. And fortunately for me, Helena Bonham Carter was sitting on the floor next to me um, getting in character. She was going to do Sally that night. And so she's backed up against the wall, and she's kind of loosening up. And she goes, Danny, what's going on? <laughs> and I go, Helena, I don't think I could do this. And she goes, Danny, what the fuck? Right? And it was like, yes, thank you. <laughs> what the fuck? And I just went through the doors and I did it. And it's like just exactly the frame of mind that I've had my whole life. And it was abandoning me at that moment. And Helena had to remind me that, uh, you know, they're not going to fucking kill you. Just go out there and do it. And it was the, one of the best nights of my life. The audience was so warm and so supportive that it was this incredible reminder of... You know, you feel like you're on a high wire without a net. 
and you're going to die. And then at a certain point you realize, no, the audience is your net. They're like totally with you. And if you, if you fuck up, they'll be fine. <laughs> you know, they'll say, it's okay. Start it again. We're absolutely, we're fine with it. That happened to me one night at the Hollywood Bowl. I, I screwed up a song and I just motioned the conductor and I, we started it again. The audience loved it. <laughs> and uh, that really is the best thing about a live performance, live audience, and theater in general. You know, it's the thing that makes theater always exciting. It's the propensity for failure is always there. And at a certain point, you're so behind an actor that if they do screw up, you're like, no, I'm there with you. It's like, come on, you can get back on track. We're right there with you. And you see them get back on track and you're rooting for them. And it feels so good, you know, if you're in the audience and that happens, you know, you, you almost feel like you helped them get back on again just by giving them your love and support. And uh, it, it was a great reminder and a great lesson of what's wonderful about live performance, especially live performance that, you know, you're not playing to pre-recorded music. There is nothing safe about what you're doing. It's not tried and true. You're, the risk factor is high. And the higher the risk factor in moments like this, the greater the rewards. That's what makes it all so fucking great. It, the audience is the net. I love that idea. Yeah. And, and it's okay. It's okay to mess up. Like, could Danny Elfman be any more awesome? I don't think so. The story about dedicating the room in the house to the German opera singer. I mean, man, what a great guy. That does bring us to the end of episode 67. Thanks again to Danny Elfman for the convo, and, and thank you for listening. The new episode in a few weeks will be with Adam from The War on Drugs. Their album, I Don't Live Here Anymore, is about to come out. And then Courtney Barnett for episode 69. Nice. Um, that'll be out in November and the final episode of this year slash season. If you've got feedback or questions, you can hit me up at Jenny LSQ. You know, it's like I'm made for FM radio, right? No, you are. You are. You should do a podcast. You're a very good. You're a I, very good talker. Uh, but I want to be like about it? a DJ on a late night jazz station. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're just kind of like talking like this, and you're using that voice, and that that's the kind of <laughs> that's the kind of thing I want to do, like that midnight to to three a.m. shift on a jazz station somewhere. <laughs>